beginning in verse 29. And as they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you wish me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. Oh, Lord Jesus, you who can heal, you who can open blind eyes, you who can quicken deadened hearts, you who have created the whole world and who has Come to serve and to pay a ransom in your serving humble self. Lord, we pray that you might help us to see you clearly today through this portion of your word. May we, who are in need of your help, may we feel emboldened and encouraged to be seeking you this day. And may you indeed do a mighty work in us according to your mercy. By your great power, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning days of this year, early January, there was a story in Newsday that featured an incident that occurred uh, back in December in which the quarterback of the New York Jets, name is Mark Sanchez, uh, had opportunity along with a number of the other players for the Jets to meet a family who are from right here on the island, during their practice session, uh, the family that met them was the Binkley family. And the reason that they had occasion to meet these players at their practice session was because little 11-year-old Aiden Binkley was suffering with cancer. And through some foundation, they had made arrangement. And this is often what happens when people who are very, very sick, these foundations and these organizations... Uh, try to give these kids a little bit of encouragement and hope. And so they made it possible for them to meet some of the players. And during that, enga- during that encounter, little Aiden is such a personality with this little kid. Amidst all his pain, and he was in tremendous pain that day, he had an opportunity to meet the quarterback of the Jets, Mark Sanchez. And interestingly enough, Sanchez was so touched by this little boy that he turned before he left and he said, Hey, Aiden. Do you have a cell phone? He said, here, take my number. And so little Aiden went away to collapse in the car moments later. The pain was so bad. And yet here he was with 
the phone number, the cell number of Mark Sanchez. And interestingly enough, after they won the game the next weekend, Mark Sanchez, one of the first things he did was he got on his phone and he called this little Aiden kid. Unfortunately, um, well, I guess fortunately, or even more surprisingly, the quarterback of the Jets, two days later, showed up at the house of the Binkleys. And he made it a point to come and speak to his new friend, little Aiden. And the Binkleys were so amazed and confounded as to how someone as significant as Mark Sanchez, well, as all that was going on with the playoffs, they were amazed by his generosity and his sincerity, his genuineness. He could have, they said, give him a little jersey or sign, an autograph, a picture or something. But here he was, he showed up and gave him his cell phone number. Sad part of the story was in Newsday that on December 30th, Aiden died. And the story that was led in the paper was the fact that Mark Sanchez was talking about his little friend on ESPN radio, and he was trying to clear his throat and get through the interview because emotionally he was having a hard time dealing with the loss of his new profound friend that he had just made in Aden. Now, I start off with that story this morning because it really was quite profound for someone like Mark Sanchez to go out of his way, to give his cell phone number, to actually make a visit in a home. Very unusual, extremely considerate and kind. Someone of that significance, we don't expect to do that. I want us to think this morning of someone who is quite significant, someone with tremendous authority, someone with tremendous uh, honor associated with him. I want to think about the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He is a king like no other. He existed from all eternity. All things were created for him and by him. And Jesus' kingdom extends as far as the most distant star we could ever possibly view, even through uh, the telescope that circulates around the earth. It's the King of Kings that we're talking about in this passage before us in Matthew chapter 20. It is the King of Kings who nonetheless freely chose to leave His rightful place of glory, took on flesh, and He dwelt among His subjects, the people that He made. And the emphasis we've just noticed in the text of Matthew chapter 20 there, the previous text was the emphasis about Jesus, who is not seeking after some positions of honor and glory, and that's the passion of his heart. He's saying, I'm come to serve. Even though I'm the king of kings and I deserve to be served, he says, I've come to serve. To give my life as a ransom, to secure the freedom of those who are enslaved in sin. One of the unique character traits of this King of Kings, this person who is so supreme and so elevated in, 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 um, in honor and in glory is the fact that he, we see in this text a matching of Jesus' mercy along with His might. It's interesting to notice that in the text as it unfolds, you can't miss the fact that Jesus' power is coupled with His pity as they come together in this beautiful section of His Word. Would you notice that in verse 29, I want us to think about 
rather than maneuvering to gain advantages, to seek his standing and privileges, notice how Jesus is going to model for us what it means to serve here. And you'll notice that the text is going to emphasize that Jesus' mercy is married to his might. And that's what I want us to notice in our point this morning is the first point is the merciful Messiah who was passing by felt compassion. At this time of the year, in the days leading up to the annual celebration of the Passover in Jerusalem, the Jews from the northern cities in Galilee would travel south. If this is the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee is here and the Dead Sea is here, they would start off in Galilee here and they would travel on this side of the Jordan River, make their way down, avoiding Samaria, and then they'd come their way and they'd reach Jericho here, which is at the top uh, the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And then they'd make their way across the Jordan River and they begin headed uh, west toward Jerusalem. And so it's a very popular place, the town of Jericho. It's an oasis city. It's a place where many people would stop and spend the night. And hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of travelers are coming through town. And what would they have seen as they approached this green city out of the desert in that area? Invariably, they would run into those who would greet them, a number of beggars, a number of people who were stationed there soliciting some sort of financial help and, and aid. And on this particular occasion, those who were begging, there happened to be two blind men. We learn in Mark's gospel that one was actually given a name, Bartimaeus. We know his name. The other man is never named. And I won't go into all the reasons as to why there are two in this particular text and only one in others. There's a long, simple explanation for it. But clearly Matthew is emphasizing the fact that there are two here in this text. And we can only imagine what life must have been like for these men. They were accustomed to being overlooked. It was a pattern for them to be ignored, to be avoided. They were outcasts trying to survive they were outcasts trying to be noticed (laughs) they were hoping somebody somebody would have pity on them and here on this day they heard the voices of a large group of people and they ascertain and understand that perhaps it was through the comments of a leper who would have filled them in on what was happening, or perhaps it was a comment from someone who was lame, and they saw what was going on, and they told them, it is Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing by. Now that has really intrigued me, that they would be told that information, and it's, it's, in order to make sense of this passage, you have to assume that these men had understood more about Jesus than just the moment He walked by. It doesn't make any sense for them to respond the way they did unless it is assumed that they had heard a number of things about him. And so my mind has begun to sort of thought, think to myself, wonder what they had heard. It's unclear what they had heard, but I wonder if they'd heard if Jesus' first public reading of the Scriptures in that synagogue there in Capernaum, he read from Isaiah 61 these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. That was the first passage of Scripture he read publicly. I don't know if they knew that or not. 
Or maybe they had heard somehow through the grapevine that someone had mentioned that John the Baptist had sent an inquiry while he was being imprisoned by Herod Antipas. And he sends an inquiry, word back to Jesus saying, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And what was Jesus' response in Matthew 11? Go and report to John the things you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Had they heard of Jesus' mighty demonstrations of power? Had they not heard some, a, a number of people speak of His miraculous healings? Jesus clearly must have passed through Jericho a number of times. That's what they did every time they'd make their way to the feasts and festivals in Jerusalem. And Jesus was from the north in Galilee. We don't know. But it's clear that these men knew that they were in the presence of someone who was great. Much greater than they. Because notice that they spoke of him. And in their appeal to him, they said, Lord, which is I think a courtesy way of saying, Sir, have mercy upon us, Son of David. That is a messianic title. They're saying, here's the Messiah. They humbly recognize Jesus' greatness, and they also were willing to admit their unworthiness. Matthew, I believe, understood the great significance of this incident. It's not by some sort of coincidence that Matthew includes this into his gospel. You've got to see and understand that Matthew has now been spending a number of chapters earlier in his gospel detailing the fact that there were a number of people who had effective uh, physical sight and the capacity to see things with their eyes who were clearly blind as to who Jesus was. And here are these blind beggars who had likely never had the opportunity to read the Hebrew Scriptures. They deduced from all the evidence that they had been told and bits and pieces reported to them about Jesus that He indeed was the anointed one from God. The powerful Messiah was here among us. And Matthew has has given you ample examples of the religious leaders of the day. Despite being able to see very well with their eyes, and many times witnessing the powerful demonstrations of Jesus' miraculous uh, works of healings and His uh, uh, incredible uh, unmatched demonstrations of supernatural power, they refused to admit that He was the Messiah. They wouldn't go there. And so in Matthew 15, we noticed uh, that they, uh, sorry, Matthew 12, they had witnessed Jesus deliver a man from demon possession. Not something that was commonly done among anybody in that day. And Jesus did it. And instead of admitting his power was from God, what did they do? They drew the conclusion that Jesus must have done this through and enabling by the power of Satan. Which was totally illogical. And Jesus pointed that out. Made no sense at all. That's how stubbornly blind they were. And Jesus referred to them in Matthew 15 that these in positions of high authority and who had such significant learning associated with them as Jewish leaders, Jesus described them as blind guides who were leading the blind. See, this is part of what Matthew's trying to see here and try to paint and help us see the the significance of their recognition of Jesus' messiahship. And I would suggest to you the focal point of the paragraph in Matthew 20 that we're looking at, beginning in verse 29. 
is Jesus' response to these men. All of the Roman governors who must have traveled through that city on different occasions, all the Roman rulers, as they made their way through with their large entourages, they would never have acknowledged. They would never, much less would they have ever spoken to a bunch of blind beggars beside the road near the city of Jericho. And that's why I believe Matthew included in verse 30 the word behold. Behold is a way of saying, look at this. There's an element of surprise here. Notice this. This is amazing. Behold, verse 30, two blind men sitting by the road. How surprising it was that such a a greater king, Jesus the Messiah, the righteous ruler sent from heaven, he did not keep on walking. He did not pass by these blind beggars as they cried out. He did not turn a deaf ear to their appeals. And when a number of people who heard all the ruckus that was going on, and clearly they were making quite a, a stir, they demanded that these blind beggars shush or as we told kids in our house, don't say it, but shut up is what they were being told. They told them in no uncertain terms, listen, you people, knock it off. Leave them alone. He's not going to talk to you folks. But Jesus doesn't keep passing by. He turns, he looks to them, and he asks a question. He engages them in conversation. They can't see him, but he is looking directly at them. And what does he say? Verse 32. What do you wish me to do for you? Most profound question. A most humbling question. That Jesus, the King of Kings, would ask these men that question. By asking the question... Jesus gave opportunity for these men to reveal their true, genuine longings. What were they really longing for? Because oftentimes when people said, have mercy on me, in that day and time they were saying, would you please give me an alms? Would you give me some sort of offering? Give me a couple coins, would you please? Were they just merely looking for a material blessing? Or were they longing to be restored to their rightful place within their families, within their community, within their relationship even to God? They long to be set free from the shame of begging and the alienation from those around them. Clearly, I would suggest to you, these men were longing for Jesus to heal them and to restore them to wholeness. Now, as I've meditated on this text, another insight has sort of jumped out to me that I think we cannot ignore. I'd like to draw your attention to it again, to Jesus' merciful heart to serve. Because that's got to be something we see in this text. It flows right out of the previous verses that have just come before. Would you notice what a change we have here in Jesus' approach versus the approach of His disciples? Verse 21, when Jesus asked the very similar question to Salome, the mother of James and John, in which He turned to her and He said to her, verse 21, What do you wish? What do you want? What is it you want me to do for you? The answer that came at that point was what? Hey, Jesus, do me a favor. Give, give, 
positions of honor and glory to my kids, to my boys. Let them sit on your right and left. Give them that status. Give them that privilege. Give them that preferential treatment among all these other followers of yours. Give them the inside track, won't you please? What are the blind beggars asking for? Did you notice the contrast? Have mercy upon me. I don't deserve anything from you. I'm not asking for kingdoms. I'm not asking for positions of power. Would you just open my eyes? Please. I beg you. Have mercy on me. And here is Jesus. As one who deserved to be served. His heart is moved with compassion. He moves toward them. He engages them. He's talking to them. He's indicating an interest and concern in them. He's he's not passing them by. Notice the end of verse 34 there. It says what? He was moved with compassion. People who serve are people who are moved with compassion for people around them. His heart of mercy was touched by their plight. Now, while the influential members of a society tend to ignore and overlook little people like that, notice that Jesus felt deep concern for them. He valued them by speaking to them. And He listened to their appeal. He let them know that His heart was tender toward them. The King who came from heaven We need to see this so clearly in this text. The King, the Almighty King who came from heaven was the merciful Messiah. He is not a cold-hearted, indifferent ruler over all things who who is indifferent to the spiritually blind people of our world who live in darkness. We must see that one of the primary motivations of Jesus in His service with other people was His heartfelt compassion for those that He understood had wandered from the fold and who were lost. He looked at people and He said, I have compassion upon you because He says, you are people who are now living in bondage. You need redeeming. and That's why I'm here. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to give my life a ransom for you. You weren't here last week. That's what we talked about. You need to hear that one a message if you didn't. For those who live in spiritual bondage, Jesus says, I know what you need. You need to have your eyes and hearts enlightened and opened. Jesus laid aside His position of glory. He became a curse for us. Unworthy Sinners who have defied Him and rejected Him and rebelled against Him again and again and again. And yet Jesus laid aside His position of glory. He became a curse for us on the cross. That we might be rescued, that He might pay our ransom, and that we might be set free. And that we might therefore have healing for our blindness of our hearts. And we might see His glory. We might walk in His truth. Turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians, page number 1390, if you're using a pew Bible. We've got to see this verse. I hope you'll see it with new lights 
in light of the truth that Jesus is a merciful Messiah. Oh, how merciful He is, my friend. And this text is one of the most glorious texts to help us see the contrast between our unworthiness and the plight that we were in and the merciful way in which God has dealt with us in Christ. Look at this carefully, would you please? I don't have time to go into unpack all this in full detail. But if you read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, you will understand very clearly a sobering description of all of us when it comes to our spiritual status and our spiritual life. We were so sick, we are on the verge of death. We were dead, actually, spiritually speaking. We've been indulging our sinful desires. That's the way we've always lived our life. We live according to Satan's ways. We really follow a lot of, all of his, his uh, approaches to life. And we disobeyed God again and again and again. And therefore, it says in verse number 3, that we deserve God's wrath. There's no way to wiggle out of that. That's true of all of us. That's what we have coming to us. And we deserve it because of all those things it says there. But look at verse 4, would you please? But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Do you see that, my friend? That God rightfully deserves to give us the consequence of our sin because He is the judge, the just judge of all the earth. But do you notice how He deals with us in Christ? But God, who being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. You mean the likes of us who had dealt with Him that way? Following Satan all these times? Defying Him? Disobeying Him? He loved us anyway? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's the merciful Messiah, my friend. And the text of Scripture just keep piling it on. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His what? Great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We read it earlier in our reading this morning. Oh, what great words these are, my friend. Do you notice how God does not wait for us to become worthy before He has compassion on us? He sees us in the mess that we're in. And His heart is tender toward us in that capacity, in that situation. Verse 5 of Titus 3, Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy He saved us. My question is, what is your response to the reality that Jesus is a merciful Messiah? Do you admit that you are in need of His help? Is that where you live your life every day? Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Have you ever begun to say that and have a first response to God that says, have mercy upon me? Have you humbled yourself and ask Christ for mercy. You say, oh, I did that years ago. When was the last time you did that recently, my friend? When you said, I need help. 
My heart is in a bad place. I'm struggling in so many areas of my life. Have mercy upon me, Lord Jesus. When was the last time you earnestly beseeched Christ to rescue you from yourself, from your sin, from your wicked ways, to save you, to set you free from your bondage, to give you a new heart, to help you in your struggle against temptation and sin that you over and over and over have fallen into. My friend, Jesus' heart is full of mercy. His compassion toward you means He will not ignore your call for help. He cares deeply for you. My friend, that's why He came. Not to be served, but to serve. To give His life as a payment for your sin that you might no longer be held in bondage. May I once again remind you of that wonderful text in Hebrews 4.16. What a great text to meditate on this week, my friend. Draw near. Draw near to God with confidence. Come to the throne of grace, he says in this verse, that you may receive what? (laughs) A long lecture? A stern look in the eye? Make you feel guilty? Or you might receive... One of these looks with the crossed arms and turn away from you, ignore you, not even have eye contact with you? He says, no, come with confidence to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy. That you may find grace to help you in time of need. I look at this text and I say to myself, why don't I cry out to mercy for God more and more? Why am I so infrequently calling out for His mercy? Because, my friend, I've forgotten how merciful He is. I don't believe it. I always think that He expects more of me and He's wagging His finger at me, saying, you should know better than that. But these men had no problem saying, have mercy upon us, son of David. I can't stop there in the text because... We've got to see the other side of Jesus too. Coupled with His mercy is the fact that Jesus is the mighty, the mighty Messiah who stopped to heal. When I told the story about Mark Sanchez befriending Aidan Binkley, one of the things I'm sure that Mark Sanchez felt at the time early in this year beginning part of January, when he heard the news that Aiden had died, is he realized how helpless he was to do anything for Aiden. All he could do was befriend him, which was a huge deal. I don't want to minimize that at all. I really respect Mark Sanchez. But all he could do was say, call me on my phone. All he could do was stop by and try to speak a couple of words of encouragement. I want you to look at this text, my friend, and notice that these two desperate blind beggars they were convinced that Jesus was able to heal them. They loudly cried for mercy and then received this stern rebuke. And it's a stern rebuke. That's what that word really means. I mean, they came down hard on them. And they ordered them to be quiet. And would you notice, my friend, 
that their response to that was, because of their confidence in knowing who Jesus is and knowing His power, knowing His ability, they did not quiet down. They made all the more noise and appealed even more loudly. They believed that Jesus was not just an important person who deserved their respect. They believed Him to be mighty, able to heal, able to save, able to restore, able to do what was, humanly speaking, impossible to do. Because nobody, nobody that had been walking across that dusty street there in Jericho would have been qualified to heal these men's eyes except the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so they pleaded for mercy. They pleaded for restoration of their eyes because they did so fully confident that the one that they're asking to help them was indeed the mighty Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And while affirming that Jesus indeed is one who is merciful, sometimes for those of us who see him in his weakness, who see him in how he dealt with people in such low levels of society, and as he humbly gave himself to serve so many people. Sometimes, my friends, we have a tendency to view Jesus as merely empathetic and compassionate, but he's weak. But my friend, notice that the text clearly indicates that these blind beggars, they knew that Jesus was the one who came to serve, but the one who came to serve has power. Power to set free and power to save. And His divine power is such that He can restore what sin has decimated. He has power to open what's been closed, to purify what has been polluted, and to replace what has been destroyed. It is Isaiah who spoke that great word of prophecy about the Messiah in chapter 9 of his his wonderful book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And what did he speak of the Messiah? He would be called... Mighty God. And this is a picture of mighty God at work. Let me ask you, my friend, are you convinced that Jesus is mighty to save in your life? Are you fully relying upon Jesus as the one who is able, Ephesians chapter 3, able to do exceedingly abundantly above what you can ask or even imagine? Years ago, John Newton, a great pastor who wrote the familiar words of Amazing Grace, wrote a number of other hymns, and one of them is a hymn about prayer. And listen to this very good line, a very helpful line for those of us. If, do we really believe that Jesus is mighty to save, mighty to help, mighty to rescue us? Newton writes, you are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much what are you asking for what do you ever pray that jesus will do in your heart and life now some of us here this morning are like those two blind beggars and the world around you as the world around them, or their little world, try to dissuade them from seeking 
help from the King of Kings, the mighty Messiah. And some of you have people in your life who are skeptical. You have people in your life who are doing their best as your friends and family members, pressuring you to stop seeking Christ's powerful intervention in your life. My friend, what you're facing is who are you going to listen to? And who do you believe Jesus to be? Jesus is the mighty Messiah. He served and gave His life a ransom on that cross for our sins, and He rose from the dead, and He has the power to overturn the curse of sin. Maybe you're this morning and you say, I'm ready to give up. I'm struggling, and I've been struggling, you say, for a long time with a hidden sin. There's a part of my life that nobody knows about. But I've just, I'm at the point where I don't know how I'm going to keep going. Maybe you're plagued by thoughts of despair. Maybe you feel as though you're chained to your past. And there's something about your past that you keep dragging behind you. And you feel you'll never be freed from it. And you're never going to be able to fully engage and live in a moment in the present where the chains of your past are not just yanking at you all the time. And you're longing to be fully and forever forgiven by God. And you're hiding perhaps some area of your life that you're struggling with. You're trying to cover up maybe your failings. You're weary of trying to bring about change in your life. It doesn't seem to be working. You keep trying to be a better person, but it doesn't work. My my friends, come to this text. Would you notice verse 34? As they appeal to Jesus as they cried out to Him louder and louder, and they would not be turned away. Would you notice, my friends, that Jesus did a powerful work in them, and He did it by touching them, literally touching their eyes, which you wouldn't ever do. No one would touch these people. They were defiled. And Jesus goes over and He touches them, and not through a period of time, over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks, and saw them restored He touched them, and they were immediately healed. And what is the text that going to say? They followed Him. They surrendered to Him. They said, look, (laughs) we're going to give you everything about ourselves. We belong to you. So now we're going to follow you entirely. May I suggest to you, my friend, the right response to the fact that Jesus is merciful and mighty is to fully surrender yourself to Him. It's to ask Him in accordance with His mighty power to change your heart and to open your spiritual eyes so that you might see with His eyes and see from His perspective what is really going on in your life. What is His agenda for your life so that you might see beyond what you've always seen to see life from a new perspective and truly know what it is to have the change of Christ working in you. To give you a love for the people that right now you resent. To give you grace to break with a sinful pattern. And to give you courage to confess your sin to God and to somebody else. To humble yourself and say, look, I need mercy. I've got an area in my life that really needs to change. When was the last time you humbled yourself and said, I need help. I'm struggling. 
and then to accept whatever the consequences may be. But in order to do so, you're saying, Lord Jesus, help me. Have mercy upon me. Do a mighty work in me. Indeed, as we come to the text, Jesus has so much power to avail to you, my friend. And his view of you is one of tender compassion. Won't you ask him? Won't you seek him? Won't you beseech him and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me? Do not let him pass you by, my friend. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into this wonderful snapshot into your ministry here on earth, oh, how we thank you for helping us see with fresh eyes the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is high and lifted up, None equaling Him in honor and glory, majesty. Yet here He is walking among the crowds of people, engaging with a heart of compassion with two blind beggars and demonstrating His compassionate response to them and healing them. Lord, help us to become like those blind beggars humbly crying out for mercy from the one who is merciful, humbly crying out to open that which cannot be opened otherwise to the one who is mighty to save and mighty to work on behalf of sinners who cry to him and turn to him humbly, acknowledging our need. Lord, my prayer today is that there will not be any among us who will let their concerns about other people, their concerns about how other people might view them, if they were to start crying out in their lives, have mercy upon me, O Christ, Son of David. Lord, I pray that you would help work in the hearts of all of us, that if we are in need of help, Lord, let us not let these moments pass us by. But help us to lift our hearts to you in prayer. And to cry out along with those blind beggars, have mercy upon us, O God. We need your help. We need your powerful working. We need you to change us. May that be what you do among us today, we pray. In the name of Christ, and for your sake and for your glory. Amen.